There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in Tampa Ranch, Michael Biden. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. Tonight, we're going to be covering some new information, and perhaps not as new as some are claiming, but there's some, uh, you know, there has been, a, the judge gave the gag order on the the quadruple murders of Ethan Chapin, Zaina Canodal, and um, Kaylee Gonsalves and Madison Mogan. And that means there's not supposed to be any information going out from the prosecution and the defense. They're not supposed to talk about the case. However, there has been things called leaks. And I always hated leaks when I was on the police department because what that is is either people from our department, which it was the NYPD when I was on, or people from the prosecution, or people that have knowledge of the case, leaking things to the press. And that, in the press, I include the broadcast media also. That certainly does not help the case. And it hurts the case. And clearly, someone is leaking information to News Nation and to Ashley Banfield. And, you know, one of the things I would ask, and Ashley Banfield has no responsibility to tell us, she has freedom of the press to tell us who her sources are, but how do we know as the public and people that are reporting on the reporters how do we know that this information is accurate? How do we know, like, we try to just use information that is vetted and is verified by the police or the prosecutor. Uh, we try to do that. It's not always possible to do that, like we're commenting today. And this, this information is coming from an unverified source. So to talk about that tonight, I brought on one of the very best uh, retired NYPD sergeant and Professor Mike Geary from Albertus Magnus College in New Haven, Connecticut. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, Billy. Good evening. Thank you for having me. Well, I think you're a fan favorite, so it's not that I, I can't pull you back now. They, they would revolt against me. So, uh, But, Mike, you were, you were listening to everything I just said. And what, what are your feelings on it? Uh, I think the gag order and it has played a, a, a tremendous part in this. Um, the dearth of information out there for the mass media to spread to the public, I, I think is uh, making uh, the, the uh, talking heads out there uh, desperate for some, uh, in, any sort of timid information, uh, relaying rumors. Uh, and the problem is in a gag order in a much lower profile case wouldn't be such a problem, but in a case like this that has actually had international uh, news coverage, across uh, Asia and across uh, Europe. Um, it makes it real, uh, it gets people desperate to uh, for any sort of tidbit. And unfortunately, there's uh, it spreads rumors and um, makes people desperate to uh, look for leaks in any way possible. And unfortunately, as you and I know, leaks will occur. And in a case like this, there'll probably be more leaks. This isn't the last leak. I'm sure it's, it'll be one of many. You know, Mike, I always, I would always hate when it happened uh, on when I was on the NYPD, and you really didn't know who was doing it. But a, a lot of times, 
the leaks could would come right from one police plaza. That's if you folks out from outside of New York City, that's basically the command and control center of the entire NYPD. That's where all the paper is pushed out of that building, you know. And a lot, <laughs> you yeah. can see, I, I have a, such a deep love for 1PP. But um, so out of 1PP, of course, the chief of detective's office, all the major officers, all the major chiefs, all the big bosses, the police commissioners down there. Sometimes the information that we as police officers, detectives, whoever, uh, sergeants, lieutenants, captains, some of the information we don't want out there, but at least with the NYPD, they had this transparency policy that they would push a lot of information out there to the press that we as investigators didn't necessarily want out there. In fact, we felt it hurt the case. However, when you're a soldier and not a general, you do what you're, you you take your orders from the general. Yeah, they we a lot of one of the, as a patrol sergeant, the one one of the things I didn't want anyone to know, and of course the detectives would be the only other ones to know, would be you know an instrument used in the killing. We wouldn't want to have that out there in the general public. Uh, positions of people in whatever rooms they were found in, um, any other t tangential things that only a possible killer would know, so that therefore we wouldn't be able to we'd be able to vet anyone who is just um, putting out some sort of confession for a headline. You'd be amazed, and maybe the public doesn't realize it, how many people who falsely confess to, to a crime. And then when they're asked, okay, well, how did you do it? Then they start guessing. And then the detectives have to know then at that point that they're, uh, they're not genuine. But you do get a lot of strange things going on, a lot of people calling up the police department and uh, trying to get some sort of 30 seconds of fame when there's a, uh, a highly publicized uh, homicide. And, uh, and they get the facts wrong. And unfortunately, uh, sometimes facts that we want to keep out of the, pub out of the public's you know, view uh, get put in there into the newspapers and the radio and things like that. And it makes it more difficult for you and Phil to go out there and do your job. You know, I would just like to also add, uh, in case some of our, our listeners are, and our viewers don't know, giving information out against a judge's gag order is a charge called contempt of court, which okay. you can go to jail for. You know, if there's no teeth in the law, what's the point of the judge giving a gag order? So who's ever doing this, whoever did this, if they do get caught, and they know it's difficult to get caught, you know, the NYPD actually would go as far as dumping the phones of the detectives. I was just like, oh, my God. Yeah. They do an investigation on the detectives. And back when a lot of this was happening, the detectives weren't even issued department phones. They had their own personal phones. So they're actually getting search warrants on their personal phones to see where the, um, the leak came from. So they were very serious about leaks because, let's face it, 1PP wanted to do the leaks. They didn't want some little detective doing it, right? Right. They wanted control of the information, whether it was prudent to give the information out. They wanted to, the ability to do it. And also, uh, the public might not realize actually how many people are privy to a lot of the facts. You, know, The patrol officers are privy to the facts. Uh, the uh, I, uh, witnesses are privy to the facts. You've got uh, the patrol sergeants are privy to the facts, the detectives, detective sergeants. Uh, secretaries, you, you've got all of these people who have, who receive copies of various reports at various times over the course of investigations. 
And there's nothing to say, to take a picture of the piece of paper on your cell phone and send it to somebody of all kinds of ways that information gets out, you know, and uh, it, it can sometimes be devastating. It's not yes. more annoying. It's devastating sometimes. You know, Mike, I think you were probably retired by this time. But when the new DD5 system came in and it was on computer, and right. in essence, you could search a name citywide. And if it popped in another detective's case, which is a great investigative tool, you'd That's be right. told about it. But a danger of this was that people on the department had access to some of these cases. There was some security to it, like they would have to log in and someone right. may ask, why were you looking at this case in such and such? Oh, you know, it could be because my brother is involved in that case, right. which is a real security problem, you know? Yeah. So these leaks, again, let me play a little bit of um, Ashley Banfield from last night, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about this after she goes on the screen. News on the Idaho murder case. A couple of sources with knowledge of the investigation have told News Nation some details that up until now we did not know. Let me lay a few of these details out, but I do want to warn you that this is graphic information and it is uncomfortable to hear this because we're talking about innocent kids who were killed in that home um, back in October. And not only that, um, this is evidence that likely will come out in court at some point. Uh, whether it will be germane to who the killer is or not, that remains to be seen, but it could be evidence nonetheless. With that See, Mike, early on in her report, she said some sources right. that, were, that are close to the investigation. I mean, isn't that the funny thing? A source close to the investigation told us, but can we or can the consumer, can John Q. Public, listening to this report, trust her sources that they're truthful? Uh, probably not. There's got to be, I'm going to guess there's probably at least a 50-50 chance this stuff might be very, might be just rumor, you know, depending on what she's saying. Some of the things we know are, are somewhat correct. Some of the stuff, information that is already been out there and there's a reinterpretation of the information, but you just love that phrase, a source close to the investigation. You know, it's so general. It could be somebody from Emmy's office. It could be somebody from the sheriff's office, the FBI's office, the Moscow police department's office. Uh, it's, it could be a uh, third-hand rumor, but they always use that phrase to try to give it some sort of reliability. And initial you know, Mike, and also the fact that it flies in the face of information that we had previously. Right. That we thought was vetted and was gospel truth. Now we're being told it's not. Let me get back to this. Yeah. That in mind, let me let you know uh, what these sources have told News Nation. Uh, number one, they told us that um, the victims, uh, Kaylee Gonzalez and Madison Mogan, were killed first, and they confirmed that Ethan Chapin and Zana Kernodal were killed on the second floor afterwards. And these are some of the. So, Mike, again, that was the facts that we were told also that. Uh, um, Kaylee Gonzalez and Madison Mogan were killed first, and they were on the third floor. But some of the details now coming after this are something new, something that we're hearing now, and something that we're getting from only sources, sources that we, we don't know who these sources are. 
I would just like to add early on in this investigation, just to show you how deep leaks go in an investigation, many uh, talking heads, specifically many FBI agents who were plugged in, knew about the eyewitness way before it was ever released. I'm talking days after the case uh, unfolded. They, they had heard. There were rumors. A lot of the rumors that came out early in this investigation, in fact, became they were true. So they were more than rumors. They were true, but they were being leaked again, being leaked. So how this hurts the investigation, you know, will determine down the road. Okay, let me get back to this. Other details that they have released. They said that Ethan Chapin was killed in the doorway of Zana Kernodal's room before the killer set upon Zana. Uh, the sources say that it appeared Ethan had stepped partly into the hallway where the attack may have begun. Um, these sources also say that Ethan Chapin suffered a slash to the neck. But I have to say that both of these details are in direct conflict with what the coroner had originally told us right here on this program exclusively. And also, they conflict directly with what police have said as well. And those two facts that are in conflict are that all of the victims were in their beds, according to police and the coroner. And according to the coroner, all of the injuries were stab wounds and not slash wounds. So I just want to play for you exactly what it was the coroner said in her words. Were any of them uh, slashed? Were were any of their necks cut? Um, Or were these all puncture wounds? Well, it was a pretty large knife, so it's really hard to call them puncture wounds. And they were definitely stabbings. Uh, Can you tell me, when you say that they might have been sleeping, were they found? This interview that we're watching now happened very, very early on in the investigation. In fact, perhaps day, well, there it is, November 17th. Uh, So that was four days. This happened on November 13th. If you've watched Duty Ron's show and you're familiar with um, uh, death investigator Barbara Butcher, who, in my opinion, is probably one of the greatest death investigators uh, in the country in the last 30 years, Uh, She was the chief of staff of the New York City Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. She has some um, things to say about coroners that aren't, uh, that that, that sort of criticize the system of a coroner. For example, the coroner for this county, who you're looking at on the screen, uh, she's an RN. So she's a registered nurse, which is great. And she has a law degree. So she's not a pathologist. She's not a medical no. doctor. So, and the fact being that um, Moscow, Idaho, this was their first murder in seven years. So she's not a very experienced coroner either in regards to death investigations. So I take a little bit of what she says with a grain of salt. I'll put it that way. Mike? Absolutely. Um, if you if you uh, go back and uh, I was just re- rereading the affidavit, the original affidavit in support of um, you know, Brian Koberger's arrest. And it talks and the uh, investigator who's the corporal in the in the Moscow Police Department uh, does his narration, you know, to establish probable cause. 
And he talks about, and if, when you read it and you go through it, and Billy, you've been through this 10 times. I've probably been through it 10 times. You're reading it over and you're analyzing what it says, trying to figure out timeline, place, put it all together. And you realize that, yeah, um, you know, uh, Kernodal and, um, and Chapin were killed second. And um, Gonzalez was up, they were upstairs on the third floor. They were killed first. You could deduce that from just reading very carefully several times the affidavit. Um, so that's nothing new. Um, the, but however, the affidavit does not in, include any information about Chapin possibly being stabbed in the hallway. Um, it just says that the, his, his body and Ms. Canodal's body were found in the, in the second floor bedroom. It's possible that, um, you know, there, there's a, obviously there's a lot more information than what is put into an affidavit, but uh, that leak that the uh, that the attack occurred in the hallway obviously came from inside the investigation uh, and probably someone who was actually there taking crime scene photographs doing blood analysis at the scene and 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 saw blood that was later identified as um, Mr. Chapin's out in the hallway he may have probably died he was probably mortally wounded and then he passed in the uh, bedroom trying to protect Ms. Kernodal. Um, so some of that information. You know, Mike, which makes it even more disturbing that right. this really in-depth uh, right. crime scene recreation, crime scene analysis mm -hmm. of where each one of the victims were prior to the attack. And now talking about how what we what was recent was earlier reported is untrue. This is the truth. These right. sources, you know. And I find it a little bit disturbing because, hey, yeah, it hurts the case. It right. definitely hurts the case. Remember, this is going out to everyone in the nation and people in Moscow, Idaho, who potentially could be uh, jurors sitting you know, on a jury in this case. They're hearing information at a time when they're, you know, maybe shouldn't be hearing this information because this information may or may not be revealed, as she even said, may or may not be relevant. It may be admitted. It may not be admitted. Uh, we don't know. And so there's information going out there that may, may actually be very vital to the to this uh, to the, the investigation and absolutely now to the trial of Brian Kohlberger and to release that information uh, in violation of this gag order. Um, you know, Ms. Ms. Uh, uh, Ashley Banfield has her job to do, but I wish she would, uh, you know, uh, just be a little bit more discreet with this information. And the person giving it to her is risking their job and risking a contempt charge. Absolutely. Um, you know, and then the other part that she talks about with the, uh, the difference between a stab wound, a puncture wound, a slash um, at this point, she's that's really very specific. I don't think the coroner in this case actually said anything that was a direct contradiction to what we know already, but um, you know the idea that, uh, uh, as she mentioned, it's a very large knife. Uh, what's the difference really between a slash and and a stabbing? Uh, Maybe may very little when when there's a, a mortal combat scene going on uh, and a, and a, a puncture wound. Uh, a knife that big probably doesn't make a puncture. You know, we're not talking about a dagger. Or, or like an ice but pick. Mike, you know what I question? I question whether the coroner, we we just talked about her qualifications, right. whether she's qualified 
to say this, to deduct this, right. to come, or that is really the job of the pathologist who in depth after the autopsies will have an, an anatomical chart where exactly. he or she will show every single stab wound and will have a report what the opinion was, what type of, was it a stab wound? Was it a slashing wound? Right. Did it cause an arterial uh, gush? What kind of blood spatter did it cause? All of those things can be in the anatomical chart. That's So I don't know, and I don't mean to beat her down, but I don't know if it, at this point, four days later, the coroner, who probably was at the autopsy, but not as personally involved in it as the pathologist who's right. actually doing the autopsy, is she qualified enough to give this report on what had occurred? She's probably reiterating things that were told to her while the afterwards or after the patho, or while the pathologist was doing the uh, autopsies on the on the four deceased. She herself did not uh, perform them, and so the information she's giving is is secondhand information. And again. You know, it's like you you tell a story to one person, have them tell another story, tell the same story to someone else. After 10 people have heard it, the story is very different from the original version. Mike, it's called telephone. And we used to play that when we were in elementary school, right? <laughs> right, right. Way, way back. Have them pass it on. Let's get wow. back to this. And found uh... in beds. Um, yes. So those uh, were the facts that the coroner told us. And like I said, it is in direct conflict with what these two sources familiar with the investigation are now telling us as well. That obviously needs to be sorted out and likely best in a court of law as well. Also want to tell you these other details that um, we have learned from these two sources that Zana Kernodal put up a fierce fight when the attacker set upon her repeatedly grabbing the attacker's knife, so much so that she sustained deep cuts to her fingers and that her fingers were nearly severed. Now, that does actually work in comport with what Zana's father had reported to an Arizona news outlet about what he knew. Thank you for watching. Go to newsnationnow.com to... So that's... Um... That's pretty disturbing. Yes. In fact, very, very disturbing. You know, and one of the things I said earlier on, and I had said it numerous times, there were rumors in the very beginning of this case that, in fact, Zana Canodal had fought fiercely. The rumors, if this is true, they turned out to be true days after this occurred. So there were even leaks back then. Are these things that perhaps the investigators told the family of Zana Canodal? to put them at peace and to see that their daughter fought hard for her life, which everyone, of course, wants to hear that their loved one fought really hard. One of the things this says to me also, if she fought this hard, there is no doubt, and we've, we've had Ed Wallace, we've had Barbara Butcher say, there's a 99.9% .9 chance that this perpetrator, and they, that was before they knew who it was, cut himself and left his blood in this, in this crime scene. I still feel that way today. And I will always feel that way. And I think they have blood DNA of Brian Koberger in this crime scene. Yeah, it would be a shock to any everyone if he did not stab himself in, in the frenzy. If you're in a, in a 
being attacked or and you're or you're attacking somebody and they're fighting back and they're grabbing that knife and it's a power play power struggle over that knife um there's you're going to end up cutting your your a weak hand forearm you're going to be you might be you cut uh your your leg or something like that i think this information about uh ms Kernodal, um probably was given to uh the family to just reassure them and as a dad you know with daughters I, I would want to think that my daughter fought valiantly and uh, at least I would have some slight measure, you know, of some peace, whatever it might be, just to think that my daughter put up a fight and fought bravely against this person. And uh, perhaps she also uh, got this information from the pathologist and indicated, like you say, uh, on drawings and on photographs that were taken of the body. And she saw these photographs, uh, you know, up close. Uh, but uh, that's something that still shouldn't. I, I, and I wish that the parents had not given those interviews like Mr. Gonsalves and Mr. Conodal. I mean, they're hurting. God, God bless them. And they want to be able to speak on behalf of their children. I understand it. But these are some of the details maybe that should not have been spoken because this may come Absolutely. out in the trial. Very, very, very also, uh, when this stuff gets out, uh, and of course it's going to come out during the trial, but it's very, very, very painful mm -hmm. for, the, for the families to hear this. And I, I would imagine uh, they're probably told a lot of this early on, so they, 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 don't, they don't get it from the press. Instead, they get it from the investigators, they get it from the police, they get it from the district attorney, and uh, in, in a closed-door meeting mm -hmm. uh, with the family, instead of hearing it on TV, where it's you know commercial television trying to be somewhat sensational with some of this stuff, uh, folks. This is police off the cuff, real crime stories. If you like real crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. Police off the cuff, and if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, uh, share it with your friends. Tell 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 about tell police off the cuff to your family, your friends, and have share it with them. And also, if you want to uh, contribute to us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel membership with five different levels. You see the folks in the chat with the green font. They're all part of our YouTube family, our family, our subs, our friends, and we appreciate them so much. So, Mike, let's con let's continue. Now, uh, Ashley Banfield pulls on, uh, puts on... Um, two talking heads and a very intelligent guy. The one guy's a homicide detective from uh, Texas. And the other one, of course, is the, uh, the professor from uh, a forensic professor. Let me put that on the screen. And we're going to also comment about this because she delivers to them what she has just found out. And is it possible or, or is it improbable what we just learned? And that's, that's what um, Ashley Banfield is, is talking about right now. With these two, um, I call them talking heads, but they're actually very, very competent talking heads. Uh, and we'll play this. And this new information that is coming to us uh, from sources close to the investigation, it really does fly in the face of what the coroner had reported earlier. Is it possible that both things can be true at the same time, what the coroner said and what these sources have said? Well, good to be back with you, Ashley. Yes, the, the short answer is yes. When I listened to what the coroner uh, shared, 
those are very, very general terms, very comment, very general comments. So, uh, and now we're talking about specifics. So yes, in the in the in the big picture of things, both of those statements are going to be accurate. And then the notion that um, Ethan may have uh, made his way partially out into the hallway, is it possible that maybe the attack began there, but then ended um, in? the bed and forensically speaking, and I'll get Joseph Scott Morgan to add to this in a moment, um, they would be able to tell, the murder investigators would be able to tell? I think so. I, I had talked about this before that it's it's certainly possible that the evildoer, I will not say his name, uh, did not know about Ethan being present in the house. So he is going to be kind of like a, a Ron Goldman, Nicole Brown situation where he is collateral damage. He has to address the fact that he has an unknown present in front of him. So I don't think that he, he is. Uh, you know, Mike, we can um, conjecture on this, but neither you nor I are crime scene experts. Um, you know, Ed Wallace would probably be able to read this crime scene like he was reading a book from uh, the blood evidence, the blood spatter, perhaps bloody footprints, perhaps uh, many other evidentiary things in regards to how, how they were killed. And he could tell us what happened almost exactly. I can't do that. I don't have that talent. I don't know if this gentleman on the screen right now has that talent to do that. But, you know, the, the blood spatter, and it's called uh, BSP, uh, excuse me, BSA, blood stain pattern analysis and crime scene investigators can read that and actually tell the chronology of the attack and also tell to a great to a lesser extent the type of wounds that were inflicted uh by by the by the stabber now when he talks about the, the, the two girls upstairs Kylie Gonzalez and Madison Mogan there's a good possibility that uh, Ethan heard the attack and got up from the bed and then was met with the attacker, with Brian Koberg, if we believe it is him that committed this heinous crime. He very much could have met him in the hallway. That's and right. That's a distinct possibility. And again, Ashley Banfield is getting this from two sources, unnamed sources close to the investigation. So we don't know if this is true or what, but two unnamed sources close to the investigation. Now, could this be accurate? Yeah, it could be. And the fact that very early on in this investigation, the rumor came at, came out that Zaina Canodal fought for her life, fought so hard. I potentially believe it probably is true. Sure. Your, your thoughts? Yeah, probably you're right. Um, if we, if the chronology that we believe uh, from the uh, affidavit, the arrest warrant affidavit is true, and obviously it, it supported probable cause, and is, you know, it's, it's a lot of the uh, investigation results up to that point. Um, most likely scenario is that uh, Koberger got into the house through the back, uh, and he, he was stealthy. He got up to the third floor. He had, a, he had the surprise, the element of surprise. He had the knife already uh, ready to go, and he attacked them first. Um, there in the affidavit, they could hear noise, and someone said, is there someone in the house? They might not have realized what the noise was, 
uh, through the walls and whatever carpeting there is um, uh, down on the second floor from, according to DM. Uh, she heard that uh, several times someone saying, is there someone in the house? Uh, and uh, and that probably the, when she opened up the door, I think the third time she actually opened up the door is when she saw the tall uh, guy with the bushy, with the mask over his face and the bushy eyebrows. And someone had said, I'm here to help you or I'll help you, which we're not sure. Um, I think it's Ethan Chapin, mortally wounded, trying to talk to give comfort to Knodel. I'm not sure about that. But at that point, by the time uh, Koberger gets down to the second floor, there are people who are now alert and awake. At to, and even Kernodal, we believe, had got the DoorDash and, and was on TikTok. So she might have fallen asleep with the TikTok on her, on her phone. You know, Mike, that's one of the reasons I think the timeline to this is so tight. Oh, yeah. It's like you know, this. Yeah, you have that... Uh, the DoorDash delivery. Yeah. Is there a possibility that the DoorDash deliverer is an eyeball witness? I would not be surprised. It is so tight because uh, he makes the delivery, according to affidavit, just about exactly 4, 4 a.m. Um, I'm sure when they get to the location, kind of like UPS and stuff, you know, they have to get on their phone, you know, type in maybe they delivered it or something like that. Uh, you know, the time that they bring their food. Uh, so it's about 4 a.m. And we believe the attacks occurred somewhere within uh, like a minute or maybe two of that. It's very likely he may have got back into his car to drive away and actually saw the white Hyundai or saw someone walking towards the house. And he just might have just looked at them, you know, through, through, through the uh, car window glass and just noticed that there's a, a figure there. Which would which would which would really give the very beginning of that crime scene taking place. It's a real tight crime scene. It would not surprise me whatsoever if he's the one that uh, that may have a got the time the beginning time and also saw that that figure right there at that location. Absolutely. When he gets to Ethan and makes that attack, it is certainly possible that he falls back into the bedroom onto the bed and then Exana at that point understands that there is something going on she may already be awake as ethan is and then once he has taken care of ethan then he goes after Exana, and she is awake and aware which gives her the ability to put up a heck of a fight and unfortunately of course it, it turned out the way it did so i would say that if the information that you've received is correct, is accurate, that it certainly falls in line with, with what we were told in very general terms at the beginning of this, and then what the evidence, as far as I was concerned, had led me to speculate on. So, yes. So, Joseph Scott Morgan, um, I, was, I was trying to be as, as tender as possible with the um, coroner in asking the nature of the, this is before we ever knew anything about the nature of the, the stabbings. And I asked if any of the victims had been slashed. Um, and she seemed to be very clear that these were all stab wounds. But these sources are saying that, you know, Ethan had been um, slashed, that his neck had been slashed, and that that was the original injury he received. I guess the same question for you, can those two things still be true? Can a coroner consider a slash a stab. 
if if her assessment was made merely by what she saw at the scene, uh, I'd say, yeah, they could be true. Those two things could be well, true. Well, I'll stop you right there. I asked her that. I asked her that. I said, were you present um, for the autopsies? And she said, yes. No, I said at the scene. If if she made that assessment at the scene, just to be very blunt with you, these injuries are going to be encrusted with blood. It's hard to make that assessment at the scene. However, however, if she went to the post, this would have been easily, easily visualized at that point in time. And not only, not only is the injury to the neck a slash allegedly according to this person, but these injuries that you're talking about on the hands, these are going to be incised wounds as well. Not necessarily slashes, but this is as a result of grabbing hold of the blade and pulling it through the hand. These are not stab wounds. I can tell you that definitively based upon my experience. So, yeah, there probably are some stab wounds, but that information is it, it, it you need more clarity here as to what she's saying. And that's I, I guess at the end of the day, it's not really the point. Uh, I would draw into question what kind of exam was conducted on site at the scene when. This is really all conjecture right now because no one knows. I mean, this is getting, she's getting this information from the coroner four days after these attacks. We know a hell of a lot more right now than we knew. This happened on the 13th. The interview she did with the coroner was on the 17th. Uh, we know a hell of a lot more right now. The other thing we spoke, I alluded to earlier was that the coroner does an in-depth analysis and written report with anatomical uh, figures to show exactly how, where, and how many stab wounds and what kind mm -hmm. of stab wounds they are. In, in fact, usually the pathologist will say stab wound number five was a fatal was mm -hmm. a fatal stab wound. They can determine that through the autopsy. So right now, this is a lot of, you know, and, and I respect both of these guys, uh, Mr. Scott Morgan, the brilliant professor, brilliant uh, forensic scientist, and also this um, the, the gentleman from Texas who's a the homicide investigator. But they're also just, they're talking heads right now. They're going on conjecture and the information that these two uh, close to the investigation of folks are giving them. Right. Yeah. Um, it, it appears that the coroner was actually uh, standing in the uh, autopsy room when the uh, pathologist was doing the autopsy. And sometimes it, depending on, uh, you know, how many people they have in that County doing these sorts of autopsies and how many helpers they have. Uh, it's probably likely that the uh, pathologist might've been narrating to the coroner, what the findings were, and the coroner might have been taking detailed notes presently at the time in real time as the as the pathologist is actually doing the autopsy. So there's a narration going on, and they're taking notes. And if you look at the, uh, if you listen, you know, as you listen to it, the um, interview with the coroner and Banfield, she's she's answering the question so generally uh, to Ashley Banfield, and uh, so I don't think because that, Mike, I don't I don't think she knew. I really don't think she knew yeah. at that point. She she herself probably did not handle the bodies, right. you know, at all. And so she's either there taking the notes or she read a transcript of the narration later on, you know, that sort of thing. So 
because she's getting the information secondhand and not firsthand. Um, like you say, she may not, she may not have known, or it could be she knew, but she didn't want to be so specific because then if she's really specific, then, um, it may come out that she's contradicted later on. And so maybe she didn't want to do that. Perhaps. You know, Mike, I want to play the rest of this. And then I would really like to get into a little bit uh, about the um, the attorney uh, for Brian Koberger okay. and some of the discovery materials. I think that's very important. But I'd like to finish playing this because this is really the meat and potatoes of this interview. And, you know, the source is close to the information these two gentlemen, even though they're very accomplished individuals, they can't really dissect this with a great degree of precision because it's coming to them third and fourth hand. I've always wondered, when did she actually get access to the bodies? And how much how much exposure did she have to the remains that she would have had to have traveled to Spokane to view those posts because that's where they were done? Well, I'll tell you what, I did ask, um, because I know that so much of the, the reports come in from not only the, the scene and the logistics of the scene, but also what the medical examiner is able to determine at autopsy. And she said she'd been at both. She was able to uh, confirm the um, amount of blood in, in Zana's room was consistent with the injuries that she saw on the scene. So, Phil, I'm going to ask you something that is is more about the, the killer's M.O., because... Brian Koberger is alleged to have staked out that home, been there many times. Um, his phone had been there at, at, at the late night hours many times. And so one would only reason that he would stake it out that night as well, and that he would know that Zana and Ethan had come home and were there together, as opposed to being surprised by that. Well, I think that's the great unknown here. So uh, we don't know if he was there staking it out. And, and what that time frame was. Thank you for watching. So it's, um, this, you know, that is brilliant. And that's a brilliant amount of, of evidence. The fact that uh, Brian Koberger and that we're able to, we have the science that's able to do that, that Brian Koberger had reconned, we call it, that's a real police work, reconnaissance, or actually it's a military word. He had reconned this location at least 12 times. So that could also go to behavioral analysis. Was he a sexual pervert trying to look in the windows? Or did he just get excited to be near the location where he knew in, in his mind, in his heart, that he was going to commit this heinous crime? So that's all part of the behavioral analysis of this. And, you know, uh, we had Mike Vecchioni on, the, the uh, former Brooklyn district attorney, with the panel of, of four the other night, yeah, which I thought was a, a, you know, I shouldn't be the one praising our show, but I thought it was a hell of a good show. It was. And Mike Vecchioni was trying to play devil's advocate and to show how, there's doubt. So what he was, re what do you mean he was reconning? What does that mean? You know, and like, we all know as potential folks sitting on a jury. Yeah, that, that means, a, that means something to me. But again, a defense attorney, cause Hey, he lives in the area. Yeah. He drives around there. Oh really? But he's 
he's practically in their driveway, you know. Right. But so we know that's very powerful information. But there are those who can, you know, play devil's advocate and say, oh, no, it's not. He lives in the area. He was just driving around, you know. Right. The uh, one of the points made about uh, Mr. Koberger is that uh, perhaps he was surprised by Ethan Chapin's presence there. And that may be due to the fact that um, the time, you know, remember the timelines when somebody get exactly gets home, we're not exactly sure of the, of the, you know, the exact minute somebody gets home. We do realize, we do know what time he turned his phone, Mr. Koberger turned his phone off in Washington. We do know what time he ended up turning it back on. And in between that, those two times, we do have pictures of him uh, from door, uh, from, uh, you know, traffic cameras more than we ever knew actually even existed uh, and, and doorbell, the doorbell cameras in the area that he actually was driving around the area. And he actually may have missed in his driving and trying to find a spot the actual time that Consalvis uh, and Mogan and Chapin and Kernodal actually entered the house. He might have actually missed that. And that would explain why he, why he might have been surprised. I don't think, I think he probably was surprised. I don't think he would have made the attack if he realized just how many people were there. And in fact, one of them was uh, Mr. Chapin, who's actually about six foot three, six foot four. He's, he's a larger, very large guy, uh, much larger even than Brian Koberger. So it's most likely plausible that he actually did not see those four. So when he was doing his reconnaissance, there's always going to be gaps, you know, in your knowledge. And that's what I think may have happened right around that, you know, two, that, that uh, 345 to four o'clock time frame. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, Mike, one of the things I didn't realize, and I'm just seeing it now, and you spoke about how, um, the defense attorney received 900 something pages of discovery. But what I didn't realize is that the defense has to present discovery to the prosecution. Oh yeah. yeah. And of course I would, I would think that, you know, they're going to turn over nothing in almost every case. Why would they turn off? Oh no, we're not going to, we're not going to use anything, but isn't that sort of the prosecution has to turn it over and has to, has to turn it over. Isn't that sort of disingenuous or allowing for a lot of, I'll use a New York word, fugaziness, fugaziness uh, on, the fugazi. of, uh, on the part of the defense? That's a little bit fugazi, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's uh, it's meant for, for, for uh, so that in going forward in the trial from day one, the prosecution will have given all their information they're planning on using uh, to the defense, all the, you know, uh, inculpatory material, that which means t t material that tends to show the guilt of the defendant, they have to turn that over. A basic due process, fairness, you know, for, it's been like that for 60 years. Um, and a lot of people don't realize, yeah, the defense also has to turn over any material that they have, which may be exculpatory, which would may which would show that um, that the defendant didn't actually partake partake of the crime. In order to not so it's there, the rule, the reciprocity is there to ensure that there's no uh, gotcha surprise moments in the trial. Uh, and so that the trial would proceed along, uh, you know, in an orderly manner 
uh, it's got to remember due process has to be fair to both sides. The absolutely the defense is the beneficiary of 99% of all of the evidence that's going to be introduced at trial because the prosecution has it. Um, but there are times when uh, a defense a defense attorney like uh, Ms. Taylor, in this case, she's going to have uh, a small crew of investigators and experts. If And if they have experts that discover or have theories about the DNA being inconclusive, the, uh, the collection of the DNA, the keeping of the DNA, the analysis of the DNA, those reports from their own experts, their own DNA experts, would have to be turned over to the prosecutor. Um, if they, if they're uh, investigators like who might or probably retired detectives uh, from forces in the area, they would go out and they would look for witnesses. And if they do find witnesses that say that, uh, well, Brian Koberger was uh, at a party in uh, Washington up until you know three uh, 3:45 a.m. And he left at 3.45 and there's no possible way that he could be in, in that place. And then 15 minutes later, be 20 miles away uh, committing a, a homicide, a multiple homicide. Those sort, that sort of information, those detectives, uh, you know, those investigators reports, the name of those witnesses will be turned over to the prosecutors. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people don't know that, but defense has to, uh, the re there's reciprocity in the discovery rule. Oh, you know, Mike, that's why we were talking about on the show with uh, Phil Grimaldi, yourself, and Mike, Michael Vecchioni about what I call, it's a canonism, the perpology, the, uh, the study of the background of the perp, and that you'll find out a lot of things through doing that, as well as what we call in law enforcement as the victimology. And in this case, there's four victims. So each one of those four victims, you need to take a deep dive into their background to find out all kinds of things, because you don't want to be surprised when this case goes to court or goes to trial, that the defense finds out something that you should have found out that potentially could hurt the case. And now the defense, with their five to six months of time to investigate this case, they're out there doing the perpology, even though it's their client, and the victimology, because they use it in reverse, the way we reverse of the prosecution. So all of that is so, so important. I just want to just read a couple of things from um, someone was asking why in the chat, and I'm not even aware that um, the, uh, here, I'll put this on the screen, Steve Roberts why has the lie detector test given to surviving roommates not been made public yet? And is that how they ruled them out so quick? Steve, nothing that the prosecution does has to be released to the public. They do not have to release anything. You know, if they want, you know, they, you talk about transparency. They're not required to be transparent to the public. They have to release things to the defense. Yes, as discovery. Uh, so they're not required to put that out there. Um, Captain Brutus. Bill, keep up the good work. We love your show. With a name like Captain Brutus, thank God you love our show. I wouldn't want you as an enemy. But uh, thank you so much, Captain Brutus. Very nice to hear that you like the show. Hey, um, Billy, can I make a comment about the lie ahead. detector test? Sure. Yeah. Um, the lie detector tests are great investigatory tools. You may have used them in uh, Manhattan North Homicide. Phil may have used them in, uh, in, uh, in uh, Brooklyn. But uh, because they're not as reliable as we'd like to think they are, 
Uh, the public thinks they're reliable, uh, but the, uh, you know, ex examinations of past cases where lie detector tests were used, we know they're not as reliable as we'd like them to be. And therefore, uh, they don't pass the uh, reliability test set by our own Supreme Court and all other state courts. So they're very good, useful investigatory tools. And if you someone passed lie detector test, you put them off to the side and then you concentrate on other people. But the, the results of a lie detector test can't be used in court to either bolster your credibility or, or diminish your credibility or attack your credibility because of the, unre the inherent unreliability of them. Because people can uh, lie and get away with it. Or people may be telling the truth, but they may be very nervous and their heart rate goes up. They start to sweat a little bit and the blood pressure goes up. And it looks like a uh, like what they call, you know, a false positive where they might be telling the, the God's honest truth. Yet um, it may indicate that there is they have trouble. Um, and it looks like, you know, from their pulse and their blood pressure and everything else that they're actually lying. So it's a great question. And you know, uh, Mike, you, you want to you want to hear something yeah. funny. And, and, and a lot of people uh, are not going to believe this, but never in my entire NYPD career have we ever use the lie detector. Oh, ever. not even really. Okay. Ever. And the, the second thing I want to make clear too, because a lot of people ask this, never have I ever heard a competent police department anywhere use a medium. And no. I know that's going to disappoint a lot of people, no. but it is never, ever, ever used. All right. And I've read the literature, Vernon Gebreth, the Bible for homicide yeah. investigation, Practical Homicide Investigation, I, I don't even know what edition. It's probably up to the fifth edition. He has a whole area in that says, no, don't ever even think of using a medium. You know, so people like it because it's sort of sexy and they, they actually believe it can work. No, nah, it's not scientific at all. No, um, I, I've, it's, it's, it may be a comfort maybe to a family that has lost touch with a loved one or someone disappeared or something like that. If it gives a family comfort, like prayer and other things, great. But to be to if, as far as police officers and detectives believing it or it it being considered evidence in a in a case, absolutely not, absolutely not. No, no. And as I said, I've never <laughs> ever seen. And, and again, we on the NYPD, they actually start. We're going to start a polygraph unit. Right. And it got actually to the point where they got names from the detective bureau and it was almost, and then they, they disbanded the whole idea of it. Yeah. So yeah. I don't think it's as common and the big police departments, I don't see them using it. And it's a can of worms. It could either yeah. help you or hurt you. Can it be a good investigative tool? Yeah. It's almost like the big bluff. That's what it is. And if you have a good investigator who's a good bluffer in an interview and an interrogation, then you don't need that machine, I don't think. Yeah. What do you do if your prime suspect says, I'll take a lie detector test and they pass it? Right. You know, uh, they're they're gonna want to introduce that as evidence of their innocence in the in the in defendant's case in chief to attack the credibility of everything the prosecutor and the detectives have done. Yeah, oh uh, it's it's one of those things. You don't want to open up that can of worms, because Mike. It's like do it's like doing a gunshot residue test to see if someone fired a gun, right? And that's like an absolute test. 
Mm -hmm. The person either has gunshot residue on their hand or they don't. Mm -hmm. So for the most part, police departments don't like to do that because how do they know the guy didn't wash his hands off or wipe right. his hands off before they got there? Exactly. And, and then it's going to come up negative and he could be the shooter. And then because it came up negative now in court, they have to say, yes, we did a gunshot right. residue test. And he and came he up. Passed. Right. So exactly. then the jury thinking in absolutes, oh, no gunshot residue. He's not the shooter. He you know? can't be. Right. Exactly. So that's why police departments don't do that. I just want to do a quick... Folks, if you're looking for an outstanding defense attorney in the New York City metropolitan area, then Joe Murray is your guy. He's a retired NYPD police officer. He's a great friend of the Police Off the Cuff podcast, and he's an outstanding defense attorney. You can reach Joe on his cell at 718-514-3855. Email him at joe at jmurray-law.com. His website is jmurray-law.com. Great friend of the show, Joe Murray. So, yeah, I just I think that's interesting because many folks that listen to true crime and many folks that are interested in this, they think polygraphs and mediums. Oh, my God. Right. That's polygraphs and mediums. <laughs> What's that? That's from The Wizard of Oz. Oh, my. <laughs> but yeah, no, yeah. it's not something that's routinely no. uh, used. No, so, uh, not at all. I want to play a little bit more of. Um, hang on of this. Another Koberger, uh, excuse me, another Ashley Banfield interview from um, from last night, and we're going to play a little bit of this in regards to the attorney. The public defender Ann Taylor is still on Brian Koberger's case. She has not recused herself, and she is back in the news again tonight. Prosecution asked her to share any evidence that might tend to prove Koberger's innocence, and this week she responded. It's called a discovery request. She said uh, that they have nothing to turn over at this time, writing, and I quote, there are no books, papers, documents, photographs, or copies, or portions thereof in the possession of the defendant at this time, which will be submitted at the time of trial. And she goes on to say, there are no results, reports of physical or mental examinations or scientific tests, which are in the possession of the defendant at this time. Joining me now is Jennifer Koffendoffer. She's a former FBI special agent with 28 years in federal law enforcement. So Jennifer, um, hearing about, I'm gonna get, get you to sort of respond to all of the things that were I don't think we need to um, listen to that, but uh, I wanted to, um, I sort of jumped the gun and I went to the discovery before I played yeah, this. No, it's good. We, we but, you know, you know what we talked about. Yeah, the the defense attorney now, um, just let's say not even in this case. Why would a defense attorney turn over something that would help the prosecution when they could just deny that they have anything? No, they have to turn over anything that is is exculpatory. Exculpatory that would show that uh, Koberger actually is tends to show that Koberger is actually innocent. Um, you know, again, what what and and so every time the prosecution is doing a discovery dump, which is going to be a lot each and every time, they're always going to ask for reciprocal discovery. And so they, and so you know, absolutely. So I wouldn't expect Ms. Taylor at this point to have gotten any sort of results of. Uh, experts from experts because they probably haven't gotten a lineup 
if they do like do DNA tests or, you know, that sort of thing. And they do, unfortunately for them, get a DNA expert that says, oh yeah, everything that the prosecution did, everything the laboratory did was perfect. And my uh, final report shows that, yeah, that's Koberger's DNA. And that actually hurts them. Yeah, they have to turn that over. And if, but if it, if it tends not to implicate Koberger, if it tends to say, show that there's a possibility, he, it's not his DNA, they have to turn that over too. So it's, it's one of those double-edged swords they're going to bring in and get witnesses that they hope will um, reveal evidence on uh, even the smallest bit of evidence that would help help exculpate him. But they run the risk, just like the prosecution. We've talked about this. You and I have talked about this and Phil's talked about this. If you do a test and it shows that it it implicates Koberger, they have to turn that over too. Remember, you mentioned specifically mentioned and we talked about this. Why wouldn't you do like a voice lineup or, uh, you know, that sort of thing? Because you don't want to open up that can of worms. If you do it and it, it, it bombs on you and it kick, you know, it, it bounces back and hits you in the jaw and it hurts your case, you have to turn those results over. Miss Taylor probably hasn't yet gotten her team together to eat, to look at the DNA, which is either going to hurt or help their case. And either one, they have to turn over those, those results. And um, that's just the way it goes. It's they're going to turn over things probably, I would imagine, by in the next uh, 30 days, you know, something like that, March or April, well before uh, the June preliminary hearing. But, yeah, they they will eventually turn over the results of of the of their own experts, uh, you know, results. And they, they have to. You know, Mike, someone's, um, Barbara Ann is asking, wouldn't they both do mental health testing? Not at this point, um, unless they're go because uh, of the fact that there's no uh, insanity defense in um, Idaho. Um, and there hasn't been so far any sort of request for a mental health evaluation. Uh, that issue, mental, the mental health status of Mr. Koberger is actually not an issue right now nobody's making it an issue so therefore nobody's going to do any sort of mental health exam on him so it's one of those things where you'd like to see what his state of mind is is he insane or not you know do an m uh, a personality inventory on him but as of right now no one's raised that issue of uh, of his mental health status so therefore um it's it, at, at this point at this point now, we don't know in the future, but at this point now, it's an it's an irrelevant issue. Uh, nobody's brought that to the forefront, so that's off the table right now. But that's a great question. That's a really great. No, question. No, absolutely. But you know something? I think that the parameters for a insanity defense are so high because yeah. if you can if yes. you can understand right from wrong and you can plan mm -hmm. to do to do what you did, it shows a mental state of mind where you understood what you were right. doing. So I think that that would exactly you from an insanity. And I'm, look, I'm, yeah. not a, I'm not a lawyer, although I play one on TV. So to <laughs> no, the same no. no, I'm not, you know, so yeah, it's successful. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's not, yeah. you have to be really off the wall to get an insanity. Uh, oh, absolutely. Defense. Absolutely. Look, and we've, we've seen people um, that represented themselves mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, that were clearly nuts. Uh, we I remember recently. 
Go ahead. Remember the Long Island Railroad shooter from about 19? Colin, Colin Ferguson, yes. Colin Ferguson, right. He represented himself. I think actually um, Ted Bundy at one point, because he actually had gone to law school. I think he actually partly represented himself. But in each case, the judge always assigns an experienced trial lawyer to sit next to them to help. Just right. so they can never say that they did not get uh, counsel, good counsel. And therefore, they can't make an appeal uh, if they get convicted based on insufficiency of counsel, because they'll even if even if they want to represent themselves, they will have the services of an, of an attorney right next to them. So that a smart judge, every judge is going to do that. But, well, the, uh, the, the yeah. saying in law is a defendant who represents himself has an idiot for a client, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know. Your, your lawyers have some good ones. And then uh, was Shakespeare said, uh, let's kill all, first let's yeah. kill all the lawyers, right? Uh, Why are they so unpopular? Uh, I don't know. Attorneys are so unpopular. So, you know, it, it's interesting, I think, to everyone here. And I don't think with this, uh, with Banfield's report last night, I don't think this is new smoking gun information. No. No. As we said earlier on the show, it's sort of uh, sad that someone close to the investigation is leaking mm -hmm. things and actually, and if they're part of the police, if they're part of the prosecution, it's sad because they're hurting the case. And I, I certainly do not like to see that. I don't think the public likes to see that. And if they get caught, they're going to get arrested and charged with contempt of court, which they deserve to. Yeah. There's too much riding on this case for anyone to taint the jury pool with uh, rumors and innuendo. Uh, and, that can only hurt the prosecution. It can't hurt Koberger whatsoever. The least bit of doubt or the least confusion uh, can only help him. Remember, the defense only has to show uh, and or convince one of the 12 jurors that there is some reasonable doubt. That's a very low standard. The prosecution has the burden of proving uh, guilt beyond a reasonable doubt to all 12 uh, you know, and so that's a much higher burden. This only hurts the prosecution and could only potentially help uh, Koberger. You know, Mike, I, you know, I've said it from uh, the very beginning. I think there is probably uh, tractor trailers full of evidence on this case that right. has not yet been revealed. So mm -hmm. I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think the defense attorney is starting to receive some of this stuff. Oh, sure. Uh, even though I don't think they're required. I don't know what the time frame now in New York City has gotten so ridiculous. They're supposed to give the discovery material over to the uh, to the defense in 15 days, which is absolutely that's lunacy. Ridiculous. And that's why in New York City, I think anywhere from 75 to 80 percent of all misdemeanor cases are being thrown out because they can't. Uh, satisfy the discovery requirements. With a case like this, how fast does the prosecution have to turn over the discovery to the defense? Well, the, disco uh, the discovery demands are going to come from the defense, you know, periodically. And they got this huge dump of information. Um, they have another uh, hearing, the uh, preliminary hearing. Uh, it's going to be a couple of days long. Uh, and it's the same standard. It's not they just have to show the prosecution just to show part of their you know case, not the whole thing, just to prove that there's uh, uh, probable cause. 
uh, and the uh, the attorneys for the defense are going to love that because there's actually going to be live witnesses on the stand and they could at that point begin to judge the some of the strengths and the weaknesses of the prosecution's case and that's great for the defense but also at that time they probably will then set a fairly set in stone trial date and as you as you positioned probably uh, probably it's going to be later on in the fall or something like that you know and i think that's probably true most likely once they get the at the you know the the etched in stone uh, trial date when they when that gets set before 30 days so 31 days to however far out they go 45 days at that point there'll be a final dump of discovery from the prosecution so that therefore going into the trial there is at least 30 days for the defense to get that final discovery dump and analyze it so um, most likely if they're if the date of the trial say the trial set for December 1st say just 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 random day December 1st um, by November 1st everything that the prosecution is going to use, at trial will have to have already been given over to the defense and the defense. You know, Mike, that date is not that far-fetched because yeah. I, they're going back June 26th. Yeah. They're going to have five days of probable mm -hmm. cause hearings. That's going to be a big one. You yeah. know what they're going to say at the end of that week. They're going to say, Your Honor, we would like to ask for a stay until September. That's guaranteed that's yeah. going to happen. Oh, I yeah. can almost guarantee it. And the judge, being a human being too, and want to take vacation in the summer is going to say, okay, granted, we'll start September, whatever a right. date in September, we'll start the trial or yeah. we'll plan to start the trial. Yeah. And oh, yeah. Um, yeah, the wheels of justice turn very slowly. I want to, before we go, I want to um, say a couple of things. First of all, folks, if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, please give us the like, give us the thumbs up on this. That's how YouTube judges us. Give us the thumbs up. Let us know you like it. And if you want to subscribe to us, again, on our YouTube, and you can also hit us up on Patreon or uh, Patreon or our YouTube uh, channel. The other thing I want to mention, Mike, and we I discussed this earlier. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it. You think there'll be cameras in the courtroom during this case? Um, I'm not a fan of them. And if they would have a, a camera in the courtroom, I would want to see a still camera that's not panning all over the place. I'd want to see a still camera just on the uh, witness stand and, and really nothing else that that would be about it because you remember the OJ Simpson case. I remember the OJ Simpson case. Um, I'm looking at the Murdoch case on TV. Um, I would rather not see uh, cameras, you know, the camera from like the judge's point of view, looking out towards the defense table, the prosecution table, and, and the gallery of people there. I'd want to see just one. I would rather not see it. I think in this case, uh, I, you know, if if there's going to have one, just have one. Uh, um, but that would be all I'd want to see. I don't know what this judge, the judge is, is uh, other than a, a law prohibiting uh, the judge from making that decision. Maybe there's a law that says you have to have a camera and the judge can't overrule it. Maybe it's a state law. But um, uh, I, I think in the interest of justice, it's possible that the judge might say we're going to allow one camera and that's it. Remember, the judge, other than a law prohibiting any sort of actions, 
the judge is absolutely God in their courtroom. So that's what I'd want to see if they're going to do it. Just one, just way people who have an interest in the case can at least follow along, get the information in real time so they could see it. So it's not subjected to uh, being edited and editorialized, you know, later on in the news, they could actually see it in real time. Well, but, uh, like I would just like to say and give my vote. I'm against cameras in the yeah, courtroom. Yeah. I think they don't uh, serve justice very well. I think the media puts amazing pressure on the courts for there to be cameras in the courtroom. When there are cameras in the courtroom, the judge, the attorneys, the prosecutor, mm -hmm. the witnesses, they all play to the camera. And I we think saw that, that we've seen that so many times. Uh, yes. I remember the, uh, the the case with the the uh, young boy with, who shot those the uh, during the riots in Kenosha. Yes, um, we saw the prosecutor uh, playing to the cameras, holding up the gun and doing all kinds of things, getting his picture taken while he was doing it in the in the courtroom. And that's distasteful. You don't want that. You don't. Absolutely. Well, Mike, we're at the, an hour and 12 minutes. We covered so much. Yeah. And uh, I almost feel more educated right now. And I was on the show. Uh, final uh, words, Mike. Um, I think we should all, all always remember, have patience. Hey, but always remember Ms. Mogan, Ms. Gonsalves, uh, Ms. Canodal, and Mr. Chapin in your prayers. But also, um, if you think about the... Um, the Kohlberger family, they, the poor Mr. and Mrs. Kohlberger now have to deal with this for the rest of their lives. They've lost their son. They're never going to see their son ever again in terms of, of being free. Whatever he is now, back when he was a little kid, they had dreams for him. Those are crushed. And just to think about them and have mercy on them too, because they are they also are hurting in this situation. Absolutely. You know, I, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Ethan Chapin, Zaina Canodal, yeah. Kylie Gonzalez, and Madison Mogan, because uh, we pray for them. We pray for their families. And these these um, episodes of real crime, we don't want to overshadow that there are real human beings in this case. And in this case, real young human beings who were, had all kinds of hope and dreams and uh, all snuffed out by... Uh, the craziness of, of a killer. And uh, we don't ever want to forget that. Folks, thank you so much uh, for tuning in tonight. Uh, I see some folks, I, I don't know, I'm not, uh, Ann Liebman, thank you so much for the $20 super chat. Very much appreciated. Lou Lemoraco, thank you so much for the $10 super chat. Very much appreciated, guys. Uh, you know, sometimes when I, when I do these shows, I just want to mention this. I, I don't you guys, I don't know if you realize it. I'm not just hosting it. I'm also producing it as it goes on, which is a lot of hats to wear. And sometimes the whole show is over and I'm like, wow, what was that show about? I just uh, there's there's a lot going on. And I really appreciate all you guys listening, giving us a thumbs up and becoming police off the cuff fans, subscribers, friends, all of those things. And uh, I want to thank you for tuning in tonight. God bless everyone. Mike, thanks so much for coming on the show. You're welcome, Bill. And thank you for your viewers. One episode, just ain't enough.